Paul Cartledge, Emeritus Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge University, Senior Research Fellow at Clare College. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. And obviously, I'm particularly thrilled because you were one of my professors when I was at Cambridge many, many years ago. (laughs) The point of this podcast, Paul, is to get a sense of you, but to get a sense of the ancient world steeped in which you have been for much, if not all of your professional life. And I want to give people just a sense of what it was like all those years ago. I want to start, if I may, by just asking you, though, provocatively, and I ask this as a classicist myself, what's the point of classics? It's to understand ourselves, obviously. Um, Someone once said that all history is contemporary history because unless it means something today to the audience for which the historian is either writing or speaking, it's meaningless and therefore in a good sense, it's contemporary, then in a slightly more dubious sense, um, we bring to the study of the past our experience, personal and collective, and also, of course, our own personal history. So I've been at this for over 50 years, and one has to be very, very careful not to interject yourself, not, in other words, to be anachronistic. Hindsight's great. 2020 hindsight is wonderful. But on the other hand, to see the past through spectacles, which are contemporary, that distort that's not a good plan. Thanks, by the way, for having me on your podcast. And we are going to talk about ancient history, but we won't rake over the ancient history of our pedagogical relationship. <laughs> well, our pedagogical relationship, I'm not sure I quite said the word right there, <laughs> intimidated as I am by being in the presence of my former professor. But no, it was a very positive one from my point of view. I thoroughly enjoyed being taught by you. And in fact, this is not our first professional engagement because many years ago, not as many years ago as when I was your tutee or the supervision person, but in 2012, ahead of the London Olympics, we went off to, well, via Sparta together to Olympia to yeah. retrace the steps of the ancient Olympians. And we made a film together as part of my On the Road with series for the BBC. It was terrific fun. And Greece is just exquisitely beautiful. People know the islands. But if you'd make the drive that we did from Athens yes. to Olympia and going through those, those that extraordinary countryside, those wonderful landscapes, and, and indeed, re, although we were in a car, of course, with our camera crew, retracing the steps that would have been walked by those ancient Olympians when they were coming from Athens yeah. to compete in the, those Olympics. My goodness, it's a beautiful country. Well, of course, they came from all over the Greek world. You mentioned Athens, but um, they might have come from what's today southeast Spain or southern France, northern Black Sea, that is Ukraine today. Uh, Or indeed, uh, later on in the Olympics, they came from North Africa, from Egypt, from Libya. So the Olympics is actually a very good place to start with the ancient Greeks because it's pan-Hellenic, all Greek. Uh, Hellenes um, today, as in antiquity, they didn't call themselves Greeks. That's a Roman name. And of course, Rome conquered Greece. It's part of the Roman Empire for centuries. And they imposed the name Greek, Grykia, upon the poor old Greeks who are Hellenes. Why did you become particularly interested in and passionate about the ancient Greek world rather than the Roman world? 
Yeah, that's quite a tough one. It's the language, basically, but also, coincidentally, the first ancient, uh, as many kids, uh, Key Stage 1, we call it in this country, they study Greek myths, not Roman myths. And so Roman myths are somewhat different from Greek, but many are straight borrowings, and then they just change the name. So my first encounter with the ancient Greek world was through Kiddie's version, I was eight years old, of the two great Homeric epics, the epics attributed to somebody, whoever he, if he really was just one person called Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I fell in love, I mean, I shouldn't have done probably, but with Achilles in the Iliad and with the dog Argos in the Odyssey in book 17, Odysseus comes back to his native island Ithaca, which is in the western part of mainland Greece. After 20 years away, lots and lots of adventures, he's the sole survivor of his native um, troop who went off to Troy, which is in northwest Turkey today. And he gets back disguised by the goddess Athena as a beggar to his palace, which is being occupied by 108 suitors, suitors who are wanting to marry Penelope because they assume, as Penelope probably did, that Odysseus was long dead. And he sees a flea tick ridden ancient dog lying in the rubbish, which is a euphemism outside the back door of the palace where all the slops and the other unmentionables got uh, thrown out. Dog recognises him, Odysseus recognises the dog, but he can't, of course, betray the fact that he recognises the dog because he's in disguise. The dog recognises him and dies because he's so thrilled after 20 years to see the man who was his master when he, the, the dog, was in his prime, a one-year-old, the best of the hunting dogs, absolutely Odysseus's favourite. So I wept, I wept buckets um, for about half an hour, I think, aged eight, and that really set me on my course. Though, course i had to study ancient greek language i started that at 11. i'm feeling a little odyssean myself because one of our cocker spaniels is sprawled across the bed on which i'm interviewing you for this podcast because well, my wife has taken up other parts of the house with our baby boy and the other spaniel who is sadly injured but you mentioned paul falling in love with the ancient world with ancient greece as a boy it gave me so much to be able to study classics at school. I mean, I did mostly Latin, a year of Greek, and then I had to catch up in the summer holidays before going up to Cambridge. How can we spread classics more widely in schools in this country? Because it's mostly associated these days with a private school, a public school education. How can we make sure that kids from every background have the opportunity to study Latin, Greek, Latin and Greek culture, ancient philosophy, ancient history, the languages which are so good to train your mind all this good stuff how can we make it more readily available to people well you're asking the right person because classics can be subdivided into all sorts of um, aspects um, the, one of the astonishing things about it is that it encompasses i'm a historian so history uh, philosophy archaeology art history um, linguistics it goes on and on but for practical pedagogical purposes at primary, secondary level, 
the key distinction is between what you and I are calling classics, by which we mean language, and we mean, in other words, a, a significant basis of your education is through studying texts in the original, whether in Greek or in Latin. But on the other hand, developed quite recently, within the last half century, very strongly, are things called either classical civilization or classical studies, where you study ancient Greek and Roman things, but you don't have to learn the language in order to do so. And obviously certain aspects of the ancient world, for example, visual, so architecture, uh, painting, pottery, whatever, they are readily accessible without language. On the other hand, um, purists such as myself, I started Latin at eight, and as I said, Greek at 11, we think that you can't enter the mindset. This is the other aspect of what it is to study an ancient culture. It's terribly different from ours in all sorts of ways, both the Greek and the Roman, and of course, within the Greek world, within the Roman world, all sorts of differences. But the key thing is that in certain absolutely foundational cultural aspects. I'm thinking gender relations. I'm thinking slavery. I'm thinking citizenship. The ancients did things very differently from us. And yet, through various, well, partly accidental, but partly conscious moments. So, for example, foundation of Byzantium, which becomes Constantinople, which becomes Istanbul, Greek culture, ancient Greek, was channeled right through what we call the later ancient world, the medieval world, up to the 15th century. What a coincidence, 15th century, beginning of what we call the Renaissance, whether northern or southern, and actually under the pressure of the conquest by the Turks of Byzantium, which Constantinople in Greek terms, they um, forced out Greek scholars who went to Italy and therefore contributed the ancient Greek element of the Italian Renaissance, which is primarily um, Roman, Italian, uh, is an obvious uh, derivation. So how do we make the uh, riches of the ancient world, both Greek and Roman, in all its variety, available to, as it were, everybody? Well, as I say, you're talking to the right person. I'm on the development committee, that is fundraising committee, of an educational charity, not that old, about 12 years old, and it's called Classics for All. And that, of course, spells out our ambition. We raise money, which we then make available to school teachers at various levels, pre-university, in other words, starting as young as eight or nine, who will be teaching either some language, that is either Greek or Latin, or more often classical studies, classical civilization. And that's largely, um, as I've said, visual plus historical. So the way to get into the ancient world without language is by trying to discover how they lived. So daily life, but also how daily individual lives were lived in society, in cultures, in polities, in states and so on and so forth. Explain to us, just in the simplest form, how foundational the ancient Greek and Latin languages are to modern-day English. 
give us a sense of just how many of the words that we use day to day actually have some sort of derivation in the ancient world? Well, derivation straight away. Um, it's guesstimated, something like about a third of English, which, of course, now we should really say Englishes, because from this part of the world I'm speaking to you from Cambridge, it's spread out, of course, across the Atlantic and then across the Pacific down to Australia, Australasia. About a third and a large percentage of that third of both Greek and Roman uh, origin etymological basis of English uh, vocab is scientific. So photography, all kinds of technical medical terms. I'll give you my favorite ancient Greek word, which um, still for medical practitioners exists, borborygmos. And that means it's an onomatopoeic. There's another Greek derived word onomatopoeic word for tummy rumbling. So you can look at it in various levels, in other words. Um, let me give you another one, democracy. Now, how did democracy come into English? Not directly from Greek, but from the French, démocratie. So there are roots, in other words, the lifting or the derivation is not a linear uh, sequential root, but sometimes it um, takes various dog legs or various um, diversions before it actually comes into English. But the, the short answer is a, a terrific amount. And there's a wonderful little series. It's called A Xenophobe's Guide to Greece. And it starts off this xenophobe, again, notice um, the words is uh, modern, phobos, fear, xenos, foreign or foreigner. A Xenophobe's Guide to Greece and the Greeks starts with about two or three pages of how we couldn't talk about, and then, as I mentioned, photography, which literally means light writing, photography, um, without the ancient Greeks, because these terms are needed for us to be able to speak. Camera is another one, by the way, which is the Latin-derived part of photography today. Give us a snapshot of what life was like in ancient Athens, and clearly it changed over the centuries, but give us a rough idea. Well, let's say we're talking about what's sometimes called the golden age or the high classical age of ancient Athens between, let's say, 500 and 300 BC before Christ, or as more of us now say, BCE, before the common era, it comes to the same thing, between 500 and 300 BC. The huge difference is between the very, very few, and we're talking about 5%, maybe 10%, who are super rich, and those who at the bottom are dirt poor. And then in between, you have moderately rich and moderately poor. And in Athens, being a democracy, it mattered if you're free and you're a citizen and you're adult and you're male, that you are able to take part. So the state, for various reasons, was um, relatively very wealthy. There are about 30, 40, 50,000 of these adult male citizens. And they were able to be paid in order to participate. But most Athenians were what the Greeks called poor. Now, what they meant by that was not that they were dirt poor, 
just a few were dirt poor beggars, but that they had to work for a living, that in other words, they couldn't afford to make other people work for them in various ways. The super rich and the very rich owned slaves, enough of them for the slaves to do the work which gave the uh, super rich owners the ability not to have to work at all. Now, how would they live? I think you're interested in living conditions. Very simply, I mean, think about it. No running water in taps within a house. No central heating. These come in the Roman period. The Romans have underfloor heating and they pipe water into your house. The Greeks are relatively, in terms of that backward, in terms of their individual home owning. But they had fountains, public fountains, and they were very keen, therefore, on making those uh, as frequent, as uh, available, and as well kept up uh, as possible. Lifestyle, in terms of diet, was relatively simple. This is a, uh, applies to the rich as well as to the poor, because they're all of them basing themselves on what's called the Mediterranean dietary triad. Um, cereals, typically barley, but if you're wealthy, wheat for making wheat bread, barley goes to make a kind of porridge. Secondly, the vine, the grape vine, Greeks, men, women too, uh, liked their wine, but they typically drank it diluted, uh, three parts water to one part wine, which to us is pretty extraordinary. I mean, was their wine that strong or did they simply like to drink quite a lot of it? And it was a way of getting water. Um, you have nicely flavoured water. It's a very interesting difference in, in culture. Greeks were one of the very earliest peoples to have wine, but also to make wine central to their culture. And then the third of the Mediterranean triad is the olive. And these go back thousands of years, and um, you can't fail to be struck when you go to Greece by seeing huge olive groves. And the olive is normally consumed not as we tend to do, or we also do today as fruit, but as oil. So most of the ancient olives were pressed. In fact, most are still pressed, but uh, many more olives today are eaten as olives, not as oil. And the oil was used for cooking and for for lighting, because without any artificial light, um, you have little um, clay um, sort of containers in which you put a wick and you have the olive oil, you light the wick, and that is your light. So you have lots and lots of them. And sometimes they might be buried with you if they were particularly fancy with nice pictures on them. But most of them were just plain clay, fired clay, pottery. So very simple type of lifestyle, except, as I say, for very few who could import luxury, for example, fish. Now, we might think fish today would be so ubiquitous You know, Mediterranean coastline. The Greek one is huge, very, very long, lots of feet. Yes, but there are relatively few social species of fish that are easily caught with ancient methods of catching no huge dragnets at the bottom of trawlers, which are powered, of course, by carbon um, fuel. And so the actual diet of the even the very rich, they might have fish 
I mean, fancy fish, relatively rare fish, tuna fish, for example, but that wasn't a normal part of the average ancient Greek's diet. I mean, we hear a lot about animal sacrifice in ancient mythology. Presumably, the Athenians would eat meat as well. Well, absolutely. But you make the point sacrifice, which has religious overtones. The ancients would regularly sacrifice if they owned a few sheep or goats, which in the country and most um, Greeks, by the way, were peasants. They weren't urban dwellers. The urban population of Athens was exceptional. I mean, exceptional being so large. And so they would sacrifice maybe um, a wedding or maybe the birth of a child, um, you know, to mark or a death. Uh, and then, of course, rather than um, giving up the meat, um, it would be cooked on an altar. And the smoke, which would possibly be laden with incense, if the family was uh, relatively wealthy enough to afford um, the incense that had, of course, to be imported from Arabia, that smoke was thought to go up to the gods. So in some cases, let's say it's a birth, so it would be a particular goddess who would receive the sacrifice. They would be relatively rare. In other words, these great familial events uh, weren't a weekly event therefore you wouldn't eat meat weekly but supplemented and you mentioned Athens Athens happens to have the largest number of public religious festivals involving animal sacrifice of the entire ancient Greek world which included about a thousand different cities so Athens is in this as in many respects quite uh, untypical atypical and we hear about in the festival of Dionysus on one occasion in one year I think it was 333 to 2 BC as many as 240 bulls being slaughtered and the point about bulls is that is Dionysus's special animal so Demeter the goddess of fertility human animal and crops she gets pigs and especially piglets sacrificed and so on and so forth so how seriously did the ancient Athenians take their religion overall and did they share the same religion as other Greek cities other ancient Greek cities no, that's a good question. They didn't have a word for, you know, the famous phrase, the Greeks had a word for it, because ancient Greek was one of the richest human languages that has ever been. But they didn't have a word for religion as such, which is, of course, derived from Latin, religio, which has the element of lig, as in ligature. So it means binding. It means the awe you feel in face of the supernatural or the divine. So, yes, they took it desperately seriously. And as I say, these religious festivals, which occupied over a third of the entire year, so some festivals were five-day festivals, you know, the annual festival of Athena, the patron goddess of Athens. That was a several-day festival and so on. Um, they took it desperately seriously because they believed there was a kind of contract between the divine and it's, of course, important to remember the Greeks were polytheists, not monotheists. They had a pantheon, many gods and goddesses, some superior to others, being more powerful, more beautiful, more terrifying, whatever, than and everyday ordinary gods and so um, they would take the compact between themselves humans 
and the immortals, that's the key thing about gods, they never died. Very seriously indeed, because if the immortals were not gratified, and if they were indeed offended by humans, by impiety, then they would wreak havoc, they would revenge themselves. This is the thought on humans in various ways. For example, Apollo. Suppose you weren't nice enough to Apollo, and you suddenly found yourself suffering a major plague, as the Athenians did in 430 BC. Well, who sent the plague? Apollo. So you've got to do desperate um, attempts to remedy the um, defect. Whatever you've done wrong, you start sacrificing, praying to, doing all sorts of things for Apollo. But Apollo is um, in many forms a god on earth. He's not just a single Apollo. He's Apollo this, Apollo that. And one of the Apollos, you and I um, remember at Olympia, we had a bit of an experience of one of them was he who turns away flies. Because apparently at Olympia in August, when the Olympic Games were held, there was a plague of flies. So among all the other discomforts of being a, a traveler or a competitor, you had to suffer them. So there was an Apollo who turns away flies. That was his um, nickname or his epithet. How did democracy in ancient Athens work in practice? Women were excluded. Slaves were excluded. How did it operate on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, we've got to distinguish levels here. And um, we're talking, let's be specific about Athens. There were actually probably over 100 out of the thousand um, Greek cities which had some form of democracy at some period uh, within the period that I've been talking about, the 5th, 4th centuries BC. So let's just focus on Athens, which from about 500 to the 320s, with some gaps, had a version, in fact several versions, uh, not all at once, of democracy. Democracy means in Greek, demokratia, the power, the force, the might of demos. <clears throat> now, people often say, oh, well, demos means people. Well, yes, it does. But the key question is, how does the people have power? And which people have power within the people? So demos can have another meaning, and it's very crucial, critical. It means the masses. It means the majority. It means the poor. So if you are a member of the elite the rich, the non-poor, for you, democracy could seem uncomfortably like the power, the might, the force of the masses of the poor over you. Because, by definition, the poor are the majority. And the key element in terms of decision-making of any democratic decision is that it is by majority voting by people who are absolutely equal in their political standing. That is, each one of them, regardless how tall they are, how stupid they are, how well-bred they are, they have one and only one vote, which they express in different ways in different forums. So in the assembly, you raise your right hand. Assemblies would be peopled by something like six to 8,000 out of the 40-odd thousand in total. So at any one meeting, let's say you might have an eighth of the entire uh, citizen population attending and hearing speeches in the open air 
proposals put to them pre-deliberated by a council which had been chosen by lot, which is the democratic way of selecting anybody for any function, as opposed to election, which is inegalitarian. It favours the well-off, the better speakers, the more good-looking. We know all about that, but we still think that uh, elections are the most important thing about democracy because you're electing in our in our case representatives whereas the ancients didn't do representative democracy they did direct democracy whereas in the law courts the 500 it might be as in the case of the trial of socrates in 399 or it might be a smaller number if the case was less majorly public political 200 any rate lots and lots of jurors to avoid bribery they voted by casting a bronze ballot into a pot and the pot would be either yes or no when the question was is so and so guilty as charged or it would be i'm going for this sentence which is what the um actual uh, person found guilty might propose or i'm going for this one which is what the prosecutor or prosecutors might propose so in socrates's case he rather stupidly proposed a much too lenient sentence so actually more people voted for him to kill himself that was what taking the hemlock meant than had voted him guilty of impiety and that goes back to your question about religion he was found guilty of impiety paul of all the figures that <laughs> bestride that period that you're particularly interested in you mentioned socrates for example but of all the figures and i'm thinking of playwrights i'm thinking of politicians i'm thinking of soldiers who really stands out for you who do you have a particular soft spot for and why Nice question. Well, if it's Athens and democracy, it's hard to avoid Pericles, who was himself an aristocrat, one of the elite few rich, for whom, therefore, democracy was not a natural form of governance because it didn't specially favour him. But he was apparently a convinced radical democrat. And he led Athens for 20 odd years in very, very different and very, in other words, changing and difficult circumstances involving plague, involving war. He's a controversial figure, both for his private life and for his public life. But overall, I'm going to be writing a book about him actually fairly soon. Uh, I find him more admirable than not admirable. Now, that's an Athenian Democrat. Let's think of someone from another city. And I'm thinking here of someone I've written about in the context of a, another city quite different, often Athens' enemy, Thebes, which is um, in central Greece. It's about 90 kilometers, 55 miles to the uh, north and west of Athens. And in the middle of the fourth century, so in the 300s, actually in the 370s, 360s, it produced several um, leading both politicians and statesmen and generals and the leading one of all and he's interesting also because he 
is said to have been some sort of a philosopher as well, a Pythagorean philosopher. At any rate, he's called Epaminondas, Epaminondas. And he was both a brilliant strategist and tactician on the battlefield, won two absolutely major battles, first against the Spartans and then against the Athenians. But he also was a political innovator. He was a federalist. Now, the Boeotian state, of which Thebes was the principal city, was a federation. So he's not actually inventing the notion of federalism, but he expands it, he exports it to the Peloponnese, an entirely new city, megalopolis in Arcadia, another semi-new, because it's a revival of an old city, Messini. These are new cities altogether, and Megalopolis is a federal city, federal capital of the new federation of Arcadia. So he was, uh, I think, a lovely man. He's what we call gay, which is um, an interesting thing. He never married, and he died uh, in battle, as a sort of Nelson figure, with his then boyfriend so boyfriend obviously had to be adult and in thebes homosexual coupling could involve two adults whereas the normal form of what the greeks called pederasty involved a young adult male with an adolescent that is a teenage male so those two stand out as males for me but what about the women and they're the most interesting and this is um, not coincidental or accidental is aspasia now she came from miletus which today is where Western Turkey on the Aegean coast. And she came to Athens. Well, we're not sure how or why, but she gets a very bad press on the grounds that she was really a whore or and a whore madam, that she ran a brothel. Now, these are total distortions of the actual fact. The basis of this um, really rude, um, as it were, social media attack from comic poets is that she lived with Pericles as his, in effect, wife without being able to be married to him legally because she wasn't Athenian. There's an irony here. Pericles had proposed the legislation whereby only Athenian girls and women could be married to Athenian men. But that's another story. At any rate, she was an intellectual and she's credited with, um, in some sense, helping Pericles with his own career, even writing speeches for him, though that's more uh, controversial. At any rate, the great figure pitches up in all sorts of um, interesting contexts. Why is your book, Thebes, the Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, so called? Why is Thebes, or why has it been forgotten? Yes, um, it has and it hasn't. Obviously, it's remembered by us uh, ancient historians. Two reasons, basically. One, there was another Thebes, and this is one that I suspect most people um, today, ordinary people, will have heard of, whereas they won't have heard of ancient Greek Thebes. And the other Thebes, though it's a Greek name, is in Egypt. And it's where Tutankhamun was buried, for example. So Thebes was um, old Egypt's capital city. So they've heard of that. They won't have heard of Greek Thebes, even though Oedipus... Um, mythical figure, of course, came from Thebes. So why is Thebes within ancient Greek history 
forgotten. It is because the history of ancient Greece is typically written around, we've already mentioned Athens a lot, we could have also mentioned Sparta a lot. And then in the fourth century, after the career of Epaminondas of Thebes, whom I mentioned, Macedon, the kingdom in northwest mainland Greece, rises up and it produces Philip II and his son, Alexander, who becomes Alexander the Great. And so typically ancient history of Greece is written around those three major political entities. But Thebes, briefly in the fourth century, held the balance. It was actually the most important political entity for a decade in the 360s BC, the lifetime, at the end of the lifetime of Epaminondas. And so that's the sense in which I meant that it's been forgotten. It's sort of written out because it was an enemy of Athens, so you forget about that. It joined with Sparta, it joined with Athens different times, but still we think of Sparta and Athens before we think of Thebes. What I tried to do was put back into the story the other city of Thebes than the historical one, which is the myth history city of Thebes. So, for example, Oedipus. All the plays, the Antigone of Sophocles, the Oedipus plays of uh, Sophocles, Euripides, Bacchae, this is set in Thebes, and Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes, which survives. Thebes was a big deal on the Athenian stage, and that then gets received in the modern world. I'll give you just one illustration, Freud's Oedipus Complex. You mentioned Sparta, and under your supervision at university, as part of my, well, as my dissertation, I attempted to answer the question whether Sparta could have been considered to have had an empire. Athens, of course, did have an empire. I want to know, in synopsis form, the fundamental differences as you see them between Athens and Sparta. And perhaps you will also answer the question within that, whether you feel Sparta did legitimately or did have an empire. It's possible to define or describe the Spartans' own home state as in some sense imperial or imperialistic because they occupied, they controlled almost half of the Peloponnese, which is the southern near island uh, of mainland Greece. And within that, within the territory of about 8,000 square kilometres, 3,000 square miles, you know, twice as big as the next um, Greek city, which was Syracuse, way bigger than the territory of Athens, were three populations, three distinct, not just um, the one Spartans. They had as their subordinate workforce Greeks who had been conquered by the classical, the 5th, 4th century Spartans' ancestors. Curious um, decision to enslave locals and make them farm and do other um, menial economic services for them, both in the home in Sparta and mainly in the fields, growing the uh, wheat and barley, the olives and the grapevine. Besides the helots, whose name means captives, which is um, symbolically apt, was another group free but not Spartan citizens. So they had no say in how the Spartans ran their politics, what sort of a polity, a political entity Sparta was going to be. So in a sense, there's an imperialistic 
entity within the Spartan state, but Aristotle, among others, um, pointed out, Polybius later, that Spartan institutions were inward-looking, that the aim was for the Spartans to keep themselves as top dog, crudely, to keep the helots down and keep the perioikoi, these are the middling people, the, the neighbours, uh, on side, so with the Spartans against the helots. And so when the Spartans did attempt to export their power, on a permanent basis, that is, you have tribute, you have an organization which has an object, uh, an imperial other object, other than merely keeping in power or extending Spartan power. When the Spartans tried that after defeating the Athenians and their allies, the Athenian Empire, in a major conflict extending over decades, retailed by Thucydides, they tried it and they immediately failed because they were lousy governors, lousy administrators. They were too um, military focused and too internally. They weren't good at getting on with other the Greeks on a long-term basis externally. And so the so-called empire of the Spartans uh, in that sense disappeared very quickly. The Athenians empire by Roman standards was of course piddling and very short-lived. It was about 50 years or so and it had as much as 200 allies, most of whom paid relatively small amounts of money tribute to Athens. But the point was to get a fleet to keep a fleet in operation to enable the alliance to, as it was originally founded, repel the Persians who had come over in the 480s and had tried to conquer mainland Greece, this great empire stretching as far as Afghanistan, nearly into Pakistan and so on, all around the Middle East. They tried to add Greece, mainland Greece, to its empire in the early 5th century, being repelled. The Athenians took up the banner of freedom. We're going to get these Persians out of our lives for good. And to a large extent, they were very successful at doing that. Did the Athenians and the Spartans stay out of each other's lanes for the most part? Of course, there was the Peloponnesian War. Yes, good question. Well, for the most part, you've made the point correctly. The Spartans principally concerned themselves with retaining their hold on the Peloponnese and the so-called Peloponnesian League Alliance, a modern term, the main point of which for the Spartans was to enable them to maintain their position against the Helots, to prevent others, for example, the Athenians, intervening in their sphere, which was the Peloponnese and bits of central Greece. There were occasions when the Spartans and the Athenians allied um, against a third party, so against Thebes, and in a way against Macedon when Macedon became a big but. Uh, Sparta and Athens could rarely collaborate for any length of time, and mostly they were either at daggers drawn, so a kind of cold war, or, as you mentioned, what we call the Peloponnesian War, 431-404, on and off, with a bit of a peace uh, in the middle of it. But at any rate, very, very long war involving much of mainland Greece, extending even to Sicily, bit to the further south towards Crete and so on. Um, eventually, the Athenians were defeated by the Spartans, but this was one of the ironies. It was Persian money because the Athenians were the Persians' main Greek enemy. So my enemy's enemy is my friend. Sparta, therefore, is the friend of Persia. Persia gives lots of 
money to the Spartans. They build a decent fleet at last and defeat the Athenians at sea. So that's the end of the Athenian Empire, thanks to, ironically, Persian money. Another of your books is called Thermopylae, The Battle That Changed the World. My dad used to tell us stories about the Battle of Thermopylae when I was growing up, and I loved to hear about it. Just very briefly, explain to us the significance of that, the bravery involved, and why you call it the battle that changed the world. Yes, there's obviously a publisher's uh, imperative here because you've probably come across other books that have as a subtitle the X that changed the world. In a way, everything changes the world. But the point of my using that title was that this battle, though a defeat, was nevertheless inevitably um, leading to the final um, resistance. So in other words, it was a preparatory battle. And if it had gone in a very different way, if it had been like England's defeat by uh, the French at rugby, <laughs> you know, if it had been a massacre in that sense, it wouldn't have done the Greeks any good. Now, why were there resisting Greeks in this pass in northern Greece in the first place? Because, as I've said earlier, the Persians conceived the notion of adding to their empire, which already went up to the western shore of what is today Turkey, so all of Asia, Asia Minor. Um, they wanted to um, stop any Greek further west from intervening in that sphere, let alone freeing any Greeks who were in the Persian Empire, and the Athenians were threatening to do that. So the Persians mount a massive invasion. The Athenians, uh, and together with the Spartans, conclude an alliance uh, for resistance. And one of their earliest choices was, how do you stop them or put up a show of resistance by land? And so you choose the pass where the Persians numerical superiority is going to be minimized so you choose a, a choke point and that is what Thermopylae is it's about a kilometer long east west and it has very narrow point in the middle and that's where the Spartans led by King Leonidas and his 300 chosen elite task force together with what six seven thousand other Greeks who had all sworn the same oath to resist the Persians that's where Leonidas concentrated his resistance Xerxes, he's the Persian emperor, that's the Greek way of saying his name, which in Persian is something like Shayatra. He leads this massive force, maybe 80,000, maybe 150,000, we're not absolutely sure, camps outside the pass at the western end and expects the Spartans and the uh, allies will simply give in, realizing they're wildly outnumbered. They're never going to be able to hold the pass and they're going to suffer a great loss of life if they try. And the Greeks under Leonidas and the Spartans say, no way, Jose, we are not going to give in. So you're going to have to fight us. And first two days are really um, very bloody for the Persian forces, which are a multi-ethnic um, force. Possibly as many as 20,000 of them were killed to the Greeks, you know, a thousand, you know, something smaller. And that's largely because the Spartans were at the head of the defense. They're extremely well trained, drilled, 
um, heavy-armed uh, hoplite, as the Greeks called them, uh, infantry warriors. The Persians rely much, much more on weapons at a distance, so arrows, javelins, and they're much less coordinated, well-trained, etc., etc. But a traitor, famously, end of um, day two, overnight, makes his way to Xerxes, says, look, Xerxes, there's a way round the back. Now, the Greeks, that is, Leonidas and co, knew there was a way round the back because they'd posted a local force to guard that back route. Unfortunately, when Xerxes then sent in a really crack force to go by the back route and therefore to kettle the Spartans and so on in by going round to the eastern end of the pass, the people uh, deputed to resist that move were totally useless. And so um, that comes the, the third day is when Leonidas and those remaining allies, because um, quite a lot, lot of them had decided, look, it, the game is up. So including Thebans, they resisted. And it was indeed um, on the final third day that Leonidas was killed, uh, mainly by Persian arrows rather than by Persian spears. Just give us in synopsis form, ex extraordinarily brief understanding of how you as an ancient historian go about being an ancient historian. So when I think of ancient historians, I think of Herodotus, of course, I think of Thucydides. But there, it, it, there aren't sort of millions of words written by these people. There's not that much that is handed down to us. So quite a bit of it, I imagine, is detective work. Yes, uh, it's been likened to trying to make a jigsaw puzzle without having the picture that uh, enables you to know what you're trying to make. It's more, actually, it's worse than that. And you mentioned Herodotus, Thucydides, uh, Xenophon, and I've mentioned Polybius before. There are headline narrative both interpretive, they're not just telling a story, they're narrative and analytical writers. And they are very, very substantial to such an extent that you can write a story based on them. But we have, in addition, various other ways of getting at evidence, primary evidence, uh, from the period that we're interested in trying to uh, narrate and explain, such as, in particular, what's called epigraphy, that is inscribed documents, typically on stone or bronze, whether private or public, laws, for example, or personal dedications to the gods or whatever. And we have archaeology, which um, is informing what I told you earlier about lifestyle, daily life uh, habits and quality of accommodation and so on. And also that tells us about religion, because lots of archaeological evidence is derived either from graves or from uh, sanctuaries, we call them more temples, religious sites, as opposed to uh, secular ones. Do you think that we have gained more from ancient Rome or from ancient Greece? And by ancient Greece, I obviously mean much more than ancient Athens. Is it possible to do such comparisons? Well, it is because the Romans themselves were very conscious that they were, in some sense, heirs to Greek inventions and they um, came along second, as it were. They claimed, of course, to have not only come along second, but to outdo the Greeks. So I'm thinking of Horace's Grykia captor, the famous saying that captured Greece took its fierce conqueror, that's the Romans, captive. What did it mean? Uh, by introducing the arts. What are the arts? 
Well, they're not so much the arts of government because Roman Republican and then imperial government is very different from the way in which a Greek city-state governed itself. But the arts, the high culture, music, uh, poetry, dance, uh, literature, and all that sort of thing. So the Romans who thought about things, who wrote political theory, and the most famous is, of course, Cicero. He did comparative study of Roman institutions versus Greek. <coughs> and he preferred, of course, being um, Cicero, his own. But so far as we're concerned, looking back, um, the lineation in terms of cultural heritage is far more on the side of the Roman than of the Greek. And that is very crudely because the Middle Ages to which we in Britain and then by extension America are heir through the Renaissance is an Italian, not a Greek phenomenon. So I mentioned Byzantium, but that got conquered in 1453. That was the end of any direct linkage between the Greeks and the Western world. In fact, Greece and the Greek world were cut off for the next nearly four centuries. While the Renaissance, while the early modern period, the scientific revolution, the technological revolution, the industrial revolution, all these things passed Greece by. So we are the much more direct inheritors of Rome than we are of Greece in political terms. And if you like to talk about certain types of technology, well, the Greeks invented an alphabet, which we still use, which the Romans borrowed and which uh, they then handed on to the rest of the world. But that's only one kind of graphic technology. The heavy lifting, the engineering kind, the aqueducts, the road building, we owe, of course, much more to the Romans than we do to the Greeks. I want to use up my remaining questions because we're running out of time. I know you have to get on by just shouting out some some names, some famous names from ancient Greece and beyond to you and asking you in a minute or two for each just to sum up why they're so significant. So I'm going to start pre-ancient Athens, pre-ancient Greece with Homer and tell us about his significance. Clearly, he's credited with the Iliad and with the Odyssey. Did he really exist? And <laughs> if, if if he did really exist, how long before those that golden period of ancient Athens that you've been talking about was he around? It's probably best to think of many Homers, but uh, each poem has a guiding theme. The brilliance of both the Iliad and the Odyssey is that one theme unifies a terrific amount of material. So the Iliad is epic and battle, and it's called Iliad because... That is the name for Troy, which is the object of the Greeks' expedition, their siege for many, many years. So there, if you are a young man in particular, you read these fantastic feats of bravery, but also some really horrible descriptions of physical in injuries. So that's, if you like, more of the boys' toys type of work. Um, the Odyssey, on the other hand, has lots and lots of roles for major women, both um, secular and sacred, both human and divine. One of my favourite characters in all ancient Greek literature, and the epics of Homer are the foundation of all Western 
literature, a full stop. Um, one of my favorite characters is in the Odyssey and she's Calypso and she's a sea nymph. She's divine and she ensnares Odysseus, the uh, eponym of the Odyssey, for seven years. And um, he pretends that he's weeping and wailing, but I don't think he was weeping and wailing all seven years to get back ultimately to um, Penelope and Ithaca. Given that the works of Homer, if there from the various Homers, if there were various Homers or from the one Homer, given that they were handed down orally, it was an oral tradition, spoken poetry. How is it that the texts which we study today were actually put down? Who did the putting down of these texts into a form that we recognise today and when? Completely right. They are, in technical terms, um, oral and they are formulaic because that's the way in which the poet who is uh, without the aid of writing remembering what he has heard and then elaborating it's like a jazz um, musician uh, doing variations on but he needs to have certain stock phrases which will fit because this is metrical uh, poetry not free verse he has to have phrases and so on anyway to answer your question, without the alphabets, so in other words, able to write um, 24, 26 letters, which will capture every sound that you can speak, borrowed from the non-Greek people called the Phoenicians, and Greeks called them the Phoenicians, in about 8th century, so let's say 750 to 700 BC, within a 50-year period, it's thought of the invention of an alphabet People had um, got enough memory and stamina using papyrus from Egypt, so you've got to have a certain amount of trading going on. They would transcribe thousands of lines, 15,000 Iliad, 12,000 Odyssey, and so there would be very, very few copies, and the premium would be on learning when the whoever Homer was invented the Iliad, which is the anger of Achilles, invented the Odyssey, which is the travels and travails of Odysseus. They then would produce, if you like, the first copies by 650 BC. Plato. Why does Plato still matter so much? Well, one uh, modern um, political and um, mathematical philosopher actually said that all Western philosophy is but a series of footnotes to Plato. What was meant by that was Plato, both as a logician and as a moral political philosopher, enunciated pretty much all the basic tools that you need to do epistemology and other kinds of logic enunciated the basic concepts democracy oligarchy that you need to do political philosophy enunciated the it was actually much developed by his pupil aristotle but at any rate the basis of the moral ethical concepts that uh, you need to work out what is a virtuous life how should one live a good life as opposed to a vicious life so plato utterly foundational why do all his works that he wrote survive because he was a brilliant stylist and so part of the reason is that he just wrote brilliant greek athenian attic greek prose alexander the great give us a sense of the scale of his victories 
the problem with him is in a way the great and um, continuing debates around, do you mean great because he achieved great things, not necessarily good things, but things that are on a huge scale that change the world as in a different way the Battle of Thermopylae did? Or do you mean that he actually was great and good? So what he did and the achievements were also positive. Well, he reigned for just over 10 years and he came to the throne age 20, so very young. And he led men in battle, four major battles, a couple of major sieges, huge distances, um, into very alien territory, fighting against totally unforeseen and unknown uh, types of forces, for example, scythed chariots or war elephants. In all cases, he came through ahead. On the other hand, he made some terrible decisions. He unnecessarily, excessively had massacred various popular. You know, you can um, draw up a balance sheet and the ledger, and it's uh, quite difficult, even in military terms, to see which would come out ahead. On the other hand, this is where I um, focus. His legacy or legacies, both Eastern and Western are unanswerable. In other words, very few other figures have become as famous in many, many national literatures, over 70. He is credited with extraordinary feats which he couldn't possibly have achieved. Why? Because he was such an amazing person in reality. So he becomes um, a quite a different person. He goes to Mecca. Well, he never went to Mecca. He um, is in the Quran. He goes up to heaven in a chariot pulled by mythical creatures. He goes down to the bottom of the ocean in a bathyscape. All this is in literature after his death, originating in the foundation of Alexandria, which he did lay out the um, terms for, the foundation stones of, in Egypt. It becomes the intellectual capital of the ancient world before Rome. And it's through Alexandria that you mentioned the Homeric epics were copied and copied, and then they were made uh, fair copies in the Alexandrian library. Well, now all that is due to, had Alexander not existed, none of that would have happened. I want to finish with a little bit of literature, and I loved studying ancient literature at Cambridge. The great playwrights, thinking of Euripides, a tragedian, Sophocles, a tragedian, Aeschylus, a tragedian, and of course, the writer of comedies, Aristophanes. For those who aren't aware of their work, for those who haven't studied their work, or indeed seen their plays in theatres, explain their significance, explain their legacy, explain how important those figures are and rem remain in the literary world. Right. Two um, ways of looking at them. One is within their original context. And what to us is extraordinary is those plays that have survived and the many, many others that haven't were written and rehearsed and staged for a one-off performance. That was it. You had to be there to see Sophocles's Oedipus Tyrannus in the theatre at Athens underneath the Acropolis in 430 BC in March, April time. So it was a very different sort of theatre, men only, uh, just three actors, 
chorus of 12 or 15, also all male, all masked and um, music and dance. A chorus in Greek means dance. Completely alien, non-naturalistic type of theatre. Why are we interested in this? Because of the written texts which were performed elsewhere in other periods, other times, coming down through eventually to the Renaissance and then being printed. What is it about them that captured the imagination? Well, they're at the root of modern Western opera, the, the stories and the very notion of theatre in that way, in the open, in the round, that um, kicks off in Italy, the modern operatic tradition. But why we now, I think, find them particularly interesting is that the elemental nature of the moral and political dilemmas are not unique to ancient Athens. They have a resonance, for example, dictatorial power should it be and if so how should it be resisted antigone was she right to stand up to her uncle who is in effect a kind of dictator and therefore was the law in mythical thebes she's only a young girl 14 15 was she right to take you know and so we argue the toss about that euripides backy where women, otherwise respectable, go bonkers, mad, because they've imbibed the force of the mania that Dionysus, the god of wine and transformation, spreads. Now, should we humans allow ourselves to be so infused, to let go, and that we actually kill our son? Well, obviously not. So the lesson there seems to be, oh, moderation, a famous Greek saying is, never in excess, nothing in excess. Aeschylus, much more craggy. He has the play, the only one that um, deals with an actual historical event contemporary with him, in which he might even have participated himself, the Persians. Well, that talks about um, the difference between democracy, republicanism, and oriental tyranny, monarchy, but verging on tyranny. So that seems to be relevant today in all sorts of ways, thinking Putin, thinking Xi, thinking Erdogan, I needn't go on. So they are brilliant dramatic pieces in their own right, but they also have resonance, uh, huge resonance today. Paul Cartledge, it's utterly fascinating. And even for me, a classicist who studied under you, illuminating as well, did listening to you speak for the last hour or so. I'm really grateful for your time and I thoroughly enjoyed you answering my 20 questions. You're far too kind, Matt, as you always have been, but it's been a privilege as well as a pleasure to give you this interview, but also to have been your teacher and to have retained our relationship over the years. Thank you so much.